Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, we've hit episode 300. Now, truthfully, counting all the bonus stuff we put out, we're well over 400. But as far as the definitive Tuesday episodes go, we're at number 300. We wanted to celebrate with a guy you would have thought would have been on this show years ago. We finally made it happen. It's Aldo Nova. I think everyone knows Aldo came out huge in the early 80s with this song right here, Fantasy made a huge splash. Off his debut album, sold a couple million records. The follow-up album, which I like really just as much, is called Subject, Aldo Nova, and it kind of tanked. It's done fine since then, but at the time, it sort of underperformed. And from then on, he put out a couple more albums, worked very closely with John Bon Jovi on a couple of them, and never really regained his footing. But what happened is he sort of pivoted into writing songs for other people. He had a lot of success working with his native, his fellow native Canadian, Celine Dion, believe it or not. And uh, he wrote a huge hit for Clay Aiken, Faith Hill, and some other people. So we get through the entire kind of dynasty of Aldo Nova's career in here. One sad thing, he had I've been holding on to this one for a few months because right around this time, he was supposed to be releasing his brand new album, the, a rock opera called The Life and Times of Eddie Gage, which you'll notice in here is not too loosely based on his own career. But because of COVID, I went to check in with him recently to get the exact release date. And unfortunately, because of COVID, it's being pushed back. So he said, go ahead and put the, uh, the interview out anyway. I don't know when the album is coming out, neither does he, but it's a pretty big creative and artistic achievement and plan. So you'll see in this conversation, you can't just rush something like that out. So hopefully keep tabs of Aldo and what he's up to, because when this thing comes out, it's going to be good. All right. So anyway, you get the full Aldo Nova story. I've been wanting to do this for years. It's about time. He called me from his home in Montreal. Okay. Now I, um, I want to hear all about the life and times of Eddie Gale. And I want to talk about that, but I, I've always been really curious. You coming out of Montreal, your actual last name is Caparuccio? Yeah, Italian. Okay, yes. And I've always wondered, how did the Caparuccios get from Italy to Montreal? Actually, first gen I'm first generation. Uh, my parents were off the boat directly from Italy. From a really? In Italy, and uh, they came off the boat in 1955. And uh, they already had three kids, my two sisters and my one brother. Then I was born here in 56. Mm. And, uh, and I didn't have the money to afford me, but this, uh, you know, that was, uh, they had to take me, I guess. I have no yeah. choice. So then I grew up with them, and I, I, my main language is Italian. So uh, Really? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I learned how to speak Italian at home because my dad would have killed me had uh -huh. I not spoken Italian at home. Uh -huh. And then, I would go to uh, English school, 
And then on the streets of Quebec, I learned how to speak French if you want to sure. play with all the kids. So I'm a trilingual. I speak three languages perfectly. So. Yeah. What brought your parents specifically to Montreal? Why there? Because it's uh, pretty much where all the immigrants came. Montreal or Quebec is a land of immigrants. Uh, there's all, there's Greeks, there's uh, Lebanese, there's Italians, there's uh, all people that are all different countries. Uh, you know, I don't know if, what could possibly possess somebody to come to a place where the winters are minus 40, and that's for almost eight months a year. But this is where they, they landed. I'm very glad. I love where I live. But yeah, yeah. I don't know what possessed them, but it was. I live in a land of immigrants. So uh, the thing is, when everybody still kept their identity, like there's a little Italy, there's a little Greece, there's a little Portugal, there's a little Spain. And so they all kept their, their thing, but then everybody integrated. But it was funny because my dad, he got off the boat in 1955, him and my uncle. And they came here before, they came here three years before my mother and my aunt. Because what they do is that they work, they came here they to work and then they made enough money to they got themselves on their feet and then, the, and then they- uh, Called for the family to come join them. Exactly, so my dad and my uncle, my uncle especially, he got off the boat and he got himself a job at natural gas. Mm. And he worked at that job till he was 65 years old, retired. Wow, wow. What'd my your job, dad do? My dad was pretty enterprising. He worked with um, steel. He worked with a lot of steel. So um, he did that. My brother did, did, does that. He's absolutely an amazing artist. I did that till I was 16. But I couldn't take all the burns and that. If you, when you see, uh, when you see, when you, when you weld, there's this thing called uh, flashes, and when you get it, your eyes turn red, and you have potatoes in your eyes. So I did that till I was uh, 15, 15, till somebody, I still I used to go into a music store, and the guy saw that I was, you know, uh, likable and knew my stuff, so he hired me to work as a salesman in his music store. So I, right away I said, okay, I'm dishing and stealing. It just wasn't for me, obviously, so. Yeah, yeah. Was your... Your family situation, I mean, they're basically immigrants. They come over searching for a better life. They work hard for it. Was this one of those situations you hear about where when the kid wants to go, wants to pursue a life in rock and roll, did, did you ever get any pushback from your parents, these people who came here looking for a better life, thinking, I went through all this trouble so that you could go to school and go to college and be a lawyer or be a doctor, and you're going to give it all up for rock and roll? Was there any pushback like that? My dad didn't want us to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. <laughs> he wanted us to work in the steel mill at 12 years old. Really? <laughs> I was making $111 at 12 years old. This is like way back. And that's a lot of money. For yeah. my, dad, my dad's philosophy was, believe it or not, my dad was so strict, was that I was making $111 a week. And my dad, I wanted to buy another guitar for $20. And I asked him for $20, he'd take my pay. Because according to my father, it was like, well, I've been supporting you all this time. Well, now you have to pay me back. That was the mentality that they had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, one day I wanted to borrow $20 from him. He wouldn't give it to me. So luckily my brother bought me the other, the other guitar. So nice. <laughs> it, wasn't like, it wasn't like you're going to go to school and you're going to become a doctor. It was like you're going to end up 12 years old, you're going to work in the steel mill and start paying it. So uh, uh huh. Uh huh. Was what it's all about. Huh. 
Was were they proud? I mean, when you go on, you know, fantasy comes out, it's a hit. Your first album sells a couple million. You're viewed as a pioneer of the merging of hard rock guitar and synthesizers. All these things start going right for you. Are your parents like, that's my boy? Are they proud? Well, my mom died when I was 13, so that's, oh. that, that's okay. That's exactly, that's why I started, I picked up the guitar to get rid of the blues. So that's the only reason, I don't know if my mom would still be alive, whether I'd be playing guitar or not. But, you know, that, you know she passed away in a car accident. Oh. So that sort of made me want to pick up the guitar to, to like just, and I just play my guitar, play my guitar in my room. And, yeah. And, was by Hendrix, but I wouldn't leave till it was like, till two years later, finally. And uh, so my father is still alive, and so I'm playing a huge, huge uh, venue. We're opening up for Blue Oyster Cult, and he comes to see me for the first time. My dad, he still, he finally understood that you know you could make money doing something else except working at steel. So he finally got it, but he wasn't convinced yet. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was, it wasn't for him. You know, so still. <laughs> It wasn't like, oh, I'm so proud of you, my son, you have a contribution. It was like, okay, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know. yeah. Should have stayed in the steel mill. You know? right. <laughs> Eventually this rock thing will blow over and you go back to the steel mill where you belong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, good. I want to talk about the whole career, but we need to talk about the life and times of Eddie Gage first. This is your this is your baby. You've been working on this for twelve years. When I read the description that you have of what this story is all about, I can't help but think that this, the life and times of Eddie Gage is really just code for the life and times of Aldo Nova. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is basically what it is. And I mean, the, the character of Eddie Gage is a little bit more flamboyant. He's a little bit more, you know, like better looking. He's more of a rock star type of thing. But yeah, it is. It's my, my autobiography of when I was young. Uh, so the, the lifetimes of, life and times of Eddie Gage is pretty much what I experienced. Some of the stuff is much more, uh, like you'll see that the lyrics are a lot heavier and they, they reflect the view of the characters. Like, you know, if you look at uh, Hey Lottie Dottie. I'm here holding one Behind the devil's son I have so many names more of a, uh, 
it's an evil personality because to me, uh, record executives and those guys, especially after years of contemplating on my career, I realized that they're basically demons. So they're going to suck your money and just yeah. eat like a pound of flesh. And, you know, 35 yeah. years later, now that I'm 64, 35 years later, I'll go back and, and realize that I really got screwed bad by yeah. the man, yeah. by the accountants, by the record company, by everybody. But back then, uh, you know, when you're a starry-eyed kid and your whole, during my whole youth, all I wanted to be was on the cover of Circus Magazine, you know, so once they, uh, they dangle that carrot in front of your eyes, you're not going to say no. Yeah, so, yeah. You're young and, you know, I mean, you're really young, you don't have any experience. And you think these, uh, these guys are lawyers and everybody else is like, you're not for your own good, but it wasn't, wasn't the case whatsoever. But yeah. still, the life of science very engaged is like my life. And the yeah. life that engaged doesn't happen in the space of two years. It, it's like it happens in the space of forty years. Mm -hmm. So it's a long, it's a long road, but it's pretty much my story. Yeah. Yeah, I've only heard the five songs that are on SoundCloud that are fantastic, by the way. And each one is sung in a different character. The first one is "Hey Lottie Dottie." It's sung under the char the character's name is Andy Cristo, which I assume means Antichrist, exactly. sort of a play on Antichrist. Yep. How'd you figure that out? <laughs> I can I can read between the lines. I'm not too dumb. <laughs> and the other guy is uh, the uh, Mistopheles. Anyway, so you must have a, I mean, to name your record executive, the Antichrist, basically. I mean, we that's what makes the Aldo Nova story so fascinating is all the promise that got squished by people in power like that. You must still, I mean, it's no wonder you want to tell this story. It's your story. It deserves to be told. Uh, exactly. On top of that, but it still has a, a sort of a devil angel type of thing, a good and an evil type of thing. That's why I named my characters Andy Christos. So this sort of, you know, you figured it out. Anti is anti. Christos is Greek for Christ. So it's like, that's what it is. Yeah. And Mephistopheles is Mephistopheles. But if you listen to the lyrics of what came to see, it literally is a literal description. I've had people that are theologians or study theology this says that's a literal uh, definition of, of what he would be like. You know, it's yeah. just a tempter, a liar. That's it. And, and it's just a great looking guy, you know, doesn't age and, you know, business type, you know, you know, million dollar ties and suits. Yeah. Like, you know, Bitton, like the same one as that James Bond, $50,000 suits, a million dollar watch, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, so, uh, uh, you know I, I've done the whole description. I've written all the, Act one and act twos, which will be in the album cover. So you'll actually get uh, uh, the whole story and the meaning of what's going on. So, but to Good. me, it's a little bit more. Uh, I envision them like that because they literally are to me that, you know what I mean? But I only like written from my story, but written from a cat, from a guy that's 64 years old, like who looks back on his eyes, life and going, well, you know, these are really what they are. And so, uh, the five song EP that I sent you, it's now turned into six songs. If you go back to listen to it, there's like this insane instrumental in the middle that I put. Oh, nice. Award. Yeah, if you go listen to it again, it's turned into a six song EP. What I'd like to do is release the six song, the six song EP of what you heard, Hail I, Daddy, uh, Crawl, uh, King of Deceit. Uh, Save a Prayer. Yeah, it says, you know. Say so a Little Prayer. When all is said and done. Yeah, all those songs. I mean, they yeah. give you they 
give you a good idea in six songs that it's a rock opera. Yeah. It's not in one style, you know. So that's why I condensed it into a version where it's like, you know, because the album lasts, it's 23 songs long. It lasts two hours. So to actually sit there for two hours and listen to something, people have short attention spans. Yeah. So you it's can learn something for, you know, four songs a day and you'll still get the, mm -hmm. the whole time. You yeah. know what I mean? the whole story is so that's fine but to, to, so you only have to take like 30 minutes out of your day to listen to the yeah. and it's great the ultimate goal of this is for this to end up on stage somewhere correct we're already working on it there's already a heavy duty producer looking for financing a guy who's already done this professionally and has really stage productions and yeah that's the ultimate goal that's why it was written 12 years ago, 12 years ago, when I wrote the thing was to be on a major stage so, with a yeah. cat. You know. Yeah. It would still be my version, which is like the album over the Life and Ties with Gage, which is great, like you uh -huh. heard. And uh, the cast production, which is like I want larger than life thing. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think some people who are, uh, you know, just viewing your career from afar or new fantasy and that's all they ever knew might be surprised, but I, I feel like this is not, this uh, creating an, a musical like this with the intention of going to the stage and having it be dramatic. I feel like Aldo Nova's music, the, the true music that came from you, not the over-processed third and fourth albums, but what Aldo Nova does when he's in creative control has always had a flair for the dramatic. And I, so this to me doesn't seem like it's that far off from something that is within your wheelhouse to do really well. Does that make sense? Of course. I mean, it's just, like I said, I started 12 years ago. And 12 years ago, in 2008, I decided to stop working with everybody completely. No more writing, no more producing, no more association, no more engineering, nothing. Screw yourself. I'm done. You know what yeah. I mean? It wasn't worth. So in 2008, I had a vision of doing a Life of Times Baby Gage, and I stuck to my guns and I starved. I mean, you know, it was like no money coming in sometimes. I got offered uh, quite a bit of money to go out and do these classic classic rock shows, but mm. I never so screw that. I'm not a classic rock artist. I never will be. And I've always got something new to offer, which is so I never, I refuse, even up to this year. And I was, really? almost ready, yeah, I was almost ready to go out and then I realized that what a mistake it would have been. So, um, Huh. And anyway, releasing the whole album now with COVID, it would you know literally put you know twelve years of work down the down the tube. Yeah, and, yeah, so. yeah. I think everybody who's uh, been working on creative projects over the years and now is the time to put them out are struggling with the same conflict that you are. Are people going to you wanted to put it out in the most fertile time it could be, and this is not it? So I'm curious about that. In the description of your show, it says that you literally starved. I mean, what have been the challenges of these last 12 years, specifically, that have, you've had to overcome for this? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't consider myself to be like, I don't like to associate with stars. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't like to, excuse my, my dad and expression, people who fart six inches above their ass. So I don't <laughs> like that. People who think that they're better than somebody else, that who do not associate with their fans. Like, you know, people say that they're people of the people, but, you know, they, they have forgotten, they've lost touch of what it's like. They're millionaires, they're billionaires, uh, living off of people, gotten rich off of people like me, the creators, 
and uh, they have nothing to do. I went home, I went to become a father, to raise my kids properly, I wanted to see them grow up and, you know, have their father along with them. I just, I find myself more in touch with like the common guy. I, you know, I, I know what it's, what it's like to, to, to have difficulty to put food on your table for your family. I know what it's like to uh, not have money to pay your mortgage or really have to, you know, like do like make sacrifices and stuff like that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a guy for the people. I mean, I associate with those kind of people, you know, the rich people who go screw themselves. I don't care. I don't, I don't yeah. like them. You know what I mean? I just, just, just don't like them. They don't, they're not, they're not in touch. They're not in touch no. with reality. I mean, look at Celine Diana. Who, who the fuck is Celine Diana? She looks like a, God knows. Somebody should tell her. All these people, you know, it's like when they yeah. sit with me, it's like, you know, I used to tell them, you suck. You suck now. <laughs> you like, sing the note. Because I, yeah. I don't use autotune. If you hear on my album or what you've heard, there's no autotune. Really? I mean, like sing it and sing it over and sing it over till they get it right or get the fuck out of my studio. That's yeah. basically so that's yeah. that's the way I produce records. So uh that's so, great. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it was everybody is like when I walked into a studio, most people knew that, you know, I was the boss. So it was like uh no right. matter how you were. So uh, but like I said, I, I came home to become a father. I hung the the Nova on the door and I became Caparucho. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope that this works out because you deserve it. And from what I can tell of the life and times of Betty Gage, it's a fascinating story as only you could tell. Your your career is a microcosm of how of the highs and lows of the music business in such a specific way. I uh, I mean there's no one else quite like it. I if you don't mind, I want to go back to and touch on some of these things because I touched on this earlier. I mentioned that you're seen primarily as a real true pioneer of merging synths with heavy rock guitar. Was that thought out? Was that when you were touching on or finding that sound, are you thinking no one else is quite doing what I'm doing or are producers telling you this? Where did that come from? The instinct to do that. First of all, I never had a producer. I mean, I was all It's all you, isn't it? Uh, like I said, yeah, it's all me. Uh, everything. I'm really British. Mastermind pretty much everything. Even the video of the fantasy with the helicopters and lasering and stuff like that. That's all me. But how did I come up with that? Well, first of all, I have very varied uh, tastes in music. Uh, as you hear on Engage, I'll go from 40-piece classical orchestra to high-tech synths to the all-out rock. But just before, I was interested before the album in new wave music, like Gary Newman. Mm -hmm. Like that. So the record before I, I was working for somebody else and writing for somebody else and basically engineering and I was sort of the ghost. I would like sing and he would go on TV and do all these things. And then when he skipped the bill, then I got stuck doing and the studio said, well, you know, you can use the studio or you can pay us the money. I said, I'll keep using the studio. And so after, and we did a bunch of new wave songs like Gary Newman and you know, Joe Jackson and all these songs that, uh, all those heavy synth pop songs. So I've, I've always been a synthesis. I had many moves when I was 14 years old. I love synthesizers. I love, you know, you can ask me how to synthesize. I, I get you a trumpet from scratch on a real synthesizer. Mm. And not, I don't use presets. Uh, you know, nowadays kids, they, 
pressing the button, get presets, it's this and that. So, mm -hmm. but I, I know how to get from scratch. So, so why I started to develop the sound is just that I already had it ingrained in me. I already had the synthesizer. I didn't have the knowledge of sense. To me, it's just like well, rock guitars. I just put synthesizer. That's all. Sure. That's in my head. It wasn't. Yeah. I was intentional. That's just intentional. It was just what came out of me. Yeah. And people would be, bands would be building on that sound for the rest of the decade, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I think the more, I mean, obviously Fantasy comes out and then Fooling Yourself is the second single and it doesn't do quite as well, but it's still good. Aldo Nova is a thing now that's selling millions of records that needs to be taken seriously. I've never understood the problem with Subject. I like that album just as much as the debut. And I feel like uh, Monkey on Your Back is a totally worthy uh, first single off of that album. I'm wondering why people think that that album was troubled or not good enough and therefore not worth promoting. I don't get it. First of all, Subject Album is not revered as one of the all time. It's probably, it's like between my first album and my second album, it's like up to there. I mean, Subject is selling like hotcakes now. And people are realizing that it was so far ahead of its time. Good, that's how I feel. Yeah. I mean, the stuff I did on subject, like the sequencing and all that stuff. Yes. You didn't have sequencers. You didn't have MIDI. You had nothing. I did that all by hand. 
uh, all tricks like if I wanted the thing to go well there's a trick with analog tape since it goes two speeds 15 uh, it goes 15 IPS and 30 IPS 30 IPS being the standard so if you put it at 15 which is half the speed it becomes an octave lower so what I used to do is put a click track play at 15 and go then when I put it at 30 you would go so these are all old school studio tricks. Mm. So um, subject is actually now considering. As a matter of fact, I listened to it the other day. It's really a good album. And now, it is. No, no, it, 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 people consider it now to be like a for what it is. It's like really ahead of its time. So yeah. I mean, the record company. What happened is that the first the first album I had creative control and everything, and I even mixed it with Tony Bon Jovi and. Um, that record did like, you know, two and a half million. I think I was watching my, my special with Casey Case. So the Apple, the, the uh, first album came out April 2nd of 1982. And by June 2nd, 1982, it, it was already sold, it sold platinum. And so yeah. it was already top eight on the charts. So that was it. So the record was like massive. Yeah. For and so, so I had complete creative control on the second one also, but more because now I could do everything the funky, the funky super science fiction things. And, and uh, so I did my concept album, you know, but it's, it's a concept album and within it are a bunch of great pop songs. Totally. But, but the songs are not, they're pop songs, but they're progressive pop songs. You know, all kinds of punches in it, time changes, but in a pop, within a pop song. So uh, the record company was like, well, at that time, it, it was the first one sold two million. The second one only sold 500,000, even though now it's almost at a million and a half, two million also. They were going, oh, well, you know, well, it didn't do as well. So now on the third album, where I guess we're, we're gonna you know, make you a little bit more commercial and we're gonna try to take you uh, into more, more, more creative, we're gonna take creative control. And on that record, Twitch, there were some songs that, you know, they took creative control of the, the whole album and some songs and I haven't even, I didn't write, I didn't do anything. So I basically was doing cover versions. Yeah. So I walked away from the deal at Sony. So I did disappearing acts a few times in my career. So. Yeah. Yeah, you have. Okay. I want to talk about Twitch, but I have a couple more questions about subject. First of all, forgive me. I'm not very smart, Aldo. What is the concept of subject Aldo Nova? I mean, there are, you know, there are little interstitials and things that imply that there's a science fiction subject, title, uh, theme going on here, but what is it exactly? Subjects are, as a, first of all, it's in a post-apocalyptic world, set in a post-apocalyptic world. And uh, it has a major music theme all going all the way through it. And uh, so it's a race of subjects that are the people that still they're like not they're like wise men but you know they're they're there and so there's a new the new younger generation the kids that sit and listen to the stories that the subject come and tell them about the world and how bad it was and how to not destroy yourselves and pretty much pretty much what every modern day science fiction movie is back that's what it was about so it's interspersed everywhere because i couldn't put it all through the record and I had to you know i had to put my pop songs but that, it turned out to be a good thing because the theme comes out everywhere. It's yeah. in the cry, it's at the end, it's in paradise, paradise. You know, so 
you know, that's so in a way that it just is it's a, it's a, a record that has a common theme musically. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't, as far as concept record, I don't know what really a concept record is. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes a lot more sense. When you turned it in, and I'm sure you're proud of your baby and you think it's great, and it is, is the, the record label, are they saying to you, we don't quite know what to do with this? Did they push it? Did they promote it as much as the first album? I didn't understand what was going on. In 1983, most, most bands or most radio turned to more commercial rock. And I come in with Monkey on Your Back, and that's a song about anti-drugs. And, yeah. and, you know, it's like completely about anti-heroin, anti-drugs. And, you know, it's heavy, like very heavy, like very heavy for the sound for the time. A lot of the guitars, you know, talk boxes and lyrics that are really like mean something. And so and everybody was coming out with like more rock, more, more pop, more pop songs at, at radio. Radio became very, uh, very astringent. It was even more, more so than today when you can't even get a song. Yeah, yeah. That surprises me because, for instance, the second single, Always Be Mine, That song makes perfect sense playing back to back with something like Def Leppard's Foolin' or any of these other, you know, hard, harder rock band saga on the loose. These kind of so these rock songs that are incorporating synths that are getting a lot of airplay all night long sounds just like those things. It's just as good. I don't understand the thinking of a record company who's like, well, I don't know about this one. You have a guy who just sold two million copies. All you got to do is keep the train running. And here's a perfect opportunity to do that. Well, like I said, it's not a matter of uh, it's a matter of the way radio went at that time. See, yeah, I guess. Record, the record companies only cater. Um, not that much has changed, but back then, you'd get a record played anywhere. Uh, all it was is payola. You give somebody like you know a couple of thousand bucks at a radio station, a couple of grams of coke, and here we're going to play your record. That's how it worked. It's still the same way today. I don't yeah. know if this is oak or whatever, but it's still the same way. You want to get a record played, you got to pay the guy. It's pay for play. Mm. It's the same thing. It hasn't changed at all. So yeah. back, I guess the people that were spinning the radio on the radio station were going, well, there's a different sound going on. You know, monkey on your back is not going to you know, cut so well with the sound. So mm. I don't know if the record companies didn't put any push on it or whatever, 
but uh, like it I didn't said, connect. That's too bad. Now I want. Oh, go ahead. Connecting now. I'll tell you now, much. <laughs> yeah. True. Okay. So, in the life and times of Eddie Gay, Gage, you imply that Eddie, uh, you know, becomes a rock star out of the gate, and then has to deal with alcoholism and drugs, and you know, all women, all the downfalls of rock stardom. But you put out "Monkey on Your Back," which is sort of an anti-drug warning song. So what what happened to you personally, if you don't mind me asking? Were you the guy who was staying away from drugs, or are you Eddie Gage who's indulging? It was kind of hard. I mean, in the nineteen eighties, I mean, you couldn't walk into a record company, oh, I know. a lawyer's office, without him pulling out the grinder. You know, so yeah. that was just what it was. And the eighties were like that was it. It was just yeah. like coke. It was drugs everywhere. You'd walk in parties, people with it on platters. And if you weren't doing it, the people would force you to do it. You know, so yeah. I did my, you know, I did my experiments, and then after that, but I did with the first record, I did my experimentation. By the time the second record came around, the sort of like learning my lesson, pretty much. Then I started writing the anti drug songs. You know, so good. Okay. You know, so, yeah, I was curious. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I definitely delved in that, and of course, for me, the first woman that made me do that was a. Uh, was, uh, you know, it's always somebody that's with you that'll make you, incite you to do that. Whether it could be a man doing it to a woman, whether it's a woman doing it to a man, somebody never starts by himself. You don't go, I decide all of a sudden, you know, I've got a brainstorm, I'm gonna go out you know, and buy some drugs. It's always somebody who turns you on, whether it's a woman turns a man on, whether it's a man turns a woman on. It's always, that's it. Monkey on Your Back tells the story of two different people, both who are hooked on drugs and how the situations work, so, or what the other yeah. on. Okay, now Twitch, obviously. So here's something I've never quite understood, and you're not the first person that this happens to either. The record company swoops in and they say, okay, we want to polish up your sound. We don't have faith in your creative vision anymore. We're gonna put all of our muscle on and uh, influence on what you're doing, and we're gonna give, we're gonna hire writers and producers, and." going to take a flashy album cover photo but then what else what often happens and i have a feeling this happened to you too they don't come through on the promotion they put all of the that muscle behind creating something that they want from you not what you want to give them and then they don't finish the deal by making sure people hear it and like you were saying pay to play it on the radio i mean i think tonight lift me up was one of the singles off of that album
first of all, I, I like Twitch. It's a it's a fun rock record. Is it an Aldo Nova record? Eh, barely. You know what I mean? But for as rock goes in 1985, it was good. But they never come through all the way. They make these promises and then they don't fulfill them. Well, for, you know, to tell you the honest truth, I was kind of glad they didn't promote Really? Yeah, yeah, because it was not Aldo Nova. And Aldo you know, Nova is like either Aldo Nova 1, Aldo Nova 2. Uh, even Blowing the Bricks was not an album on the record. That was yeah. a wannabe John Bon Jovi record. So, but it just got some great songs because I found all the demos. All the songs were written by me pre-Bon Jovi, and he just changed some lyrics on it. But Twitch, I was really happy. I didn't think that it sounded like me. It wasn't me. The, the engineer wasn't Tony Bon Jovi. It was some guy who just discovered reverb. It's like all of a sudden, you know, you hear reverb all over the place. My voice is drowned. The snare sounds like whether it's a real drummer, whether it's Anton Fig, and whether whether it's Alan Schwartzberg, it's the snare is just going boom, boom in the middle of your face with a lot of uh, reverb on it. So I, I listened to the other record the other day. It's really not a bad record. I would love for the record company, I've even made a request for it, that they send me the digitized version of it so I could remix it mm. and build drums on it. So yeah. It's not. Like Fallen Angel is a great song. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's a worthy rock record. It's just not an Aldo Nova record. It's not. Yeah. Not a, yeah. Not a great record. So, I mean, it's not, it's not a, that's why after listening to it, sure, it's okay, but it's not me. No, you know? no, you can tell. You can tell. Um, now, I, I didn't know this at the time, but I learned it years later that, okay, so everybody knows that John Bon Jovi signs you to his label and puts out Blood on the Bricks. My understanding, which I didn't learn about until years later, was that this was a way of him paying you back for coming up with the riff on Blaze of Glory. You came up with that riff? I came up with the riff, yeah, but uh, actually I was making my wife here the other day. Actually, I had the original cassette of when we were recording like just acoustic guitar and stuff, and you hear me at the end, there's a break in the cassette, and then you'll hear me going, because he wanted something like, he wanted something since it was the movie was Young Guns too. It was very Western. Influence. Yeah. Uh, he wanted something that sounded like uh, Wanted Dead or Alive. Yeah. This the song is in D minor. I sort of pedaled the D and just played this line on the second string, and it went like that. 
And then I just play it and you hear me coming up with it. It's actually on the tape. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, okay, well, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. We're going to move that. So I still have that cassette. And I actually found the other day I was digitizing old bats because tapes get really old and you need special equipment to, to make them to make them to make them play otherwise they'll shatter. So I found like that. Uh, I had that the original cassette. But then I found my demo that I did before uh, we went to Los Angeles and did that. It's identical. It's completely identical. There's nothing wrong. There's just exactly no per note. Except you'll hear there's an extended version in the middle, but exactly the same. And if John would, and then I spent on top of that three weeks in his basement in the studio, just doing all the demos to all the songs that we did uh, on Young Guns 2. So then when he went to Los Angeles, he had to hire this whole crew of musicians, like, you know, Randy Jackson. Yeah. Eddie Korchmar produced that. Yeah, well, he didn't really produce it, but I mean, you know, he didn't do much. Interesting. <laughs> I had him on recently and we talked about that, but he didn't say that. No, no, no. He's like, the reason we took Danny Korshberg is because he had just done Don Henley building the perfect piece. But me and John used to be like, wow, it's a great record. This is a great album. This is a great album. And um, we, we, uh, we went down there and we realized that this guy really is not really what, what it, you know, it wasn't, wasn't too much that. And so uh, it got towards the middle. I remember when we did Blaze of Glory, let's take that. Now we did Blaze of Glory and on my demo, there's like 12 string guitars, but they all have special tunings, open Ds and, you know, like three Ds and then an A and, you know, and it's got like two, two six strings, two 12 strings, all tuned specially, slide guitar, uh, a thing that sounds like a mouth harp, uh, if you hear Blaze of Glory, it's all that stuff. So I'd done that on all my demos. So by the time we went to the States, when we did Blaze of Glory with Danny Korshbart producing, there was just, you know, Wadi Wachtel playing me playing acoustic. So it was one acoustic, six string. It was Wadi Wachtel playing the slide. It was Benmont on the, uh, Ben Montez from the Heartbreakers playing organ. Uh, Kenny Aronoff playing drums. And they, they were trying to copy my demo, but my demo was so elaborate that only I could have done it. So we, you know, we, me and Johnny were living in a place called, was this old, up in, um, up in the Beverly Hills. Um, there was a place that was so tacky, we called it Disgraceland, not Graceland. <laughs> so we were up there and um, we were playing the playback of that day. And I said, Johnny, this, this is really bad. I said, this is really bad. I mean, I don't know, you can't, you can't do this. He goes, what would you do? I said, well, I'd go back in tomorrow morning and I, you know, cut it the way I cut the thing. So he says, okay, we're going to go back in. He calls the engineer. I go back in the morning and take my guitars, tune them up, have the, the, the Rory tune them up, or the tech, tune up the guitars, and we start doing everything like the record, everything like my demo, exactly the same thing. And then when we're uh, at the point where we're almost everything, I'm in the room with the, with the, with the engineer, and John's there, and Danny Korshman comes in and like blows a gasket. He goes, really? yeah, he goes like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So I'm the producer. And then John said, listen, let him do what he wants. And that's basically what, that's just the true story of that. No so. way. Yeah, yeah. way. Now, why didn't you get a co-writing credit on that song? It's not the co-writing credit that I really care about. It's, uh, it's the co-producer credit or just yeah. a credit that says arranged 
I mean, uh, those were all copies of my arrangements on all. Yeah. Time. I didn't get an arranging credit. It was just like, uh, I don't know. He just said, thank you, Alanova, whatever, you know, so. That's it. See, that sucks. Well, it's the same thing like with Runaway. I mean, you know, uh, Runaway, he didn't give Tony Bon Jovi credit at all, but Tony Bon Jovi put that whole band together, uh, you know, with Roy Bitton and Lee McDonald and Tim Pierce and me and mm-hmm. all those guys. Everybody went for Tony Bon Jovi. They didn't go for John. Nobody knew who he was. Wow. So it's something wow. don't get acknowledged that they should. Yeah. So John Bon Jovi acknowledges this, and that's why he agrees to work with you and help you kind of come back with blood on the bricks. for the fact that Blood on the Bricks, I had all my demos done to all of the songs, whether it be Bang Bang, okay. Touch of Madness. So they were all great songs, all super well produced. I think he did it on the merits of the fact that the songs were great and that, you know, that, you know I mean, it's going to be a great record. And that's, yeah. I think, what it is. The fact that he owed me a favor, I think it's just that crock of shit. Oh, um, okay. Okay. That's kind of the legend. Now, I'm curious about something, and I... I I find the transitions in people's careers really fascinating because there's a moment when a lot of people go from nothing to selling 2 million copies of their debut album to eventually sliding back to sort of almost nothing again. And I wonder what that's like after Twitch comes out and it underperforms. Do you wake up one day and think I've got to rethink my whole career? I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I thought I was on this path to making solo albums and being a killer solo artist. And that path is done. And I don't know where to go from here. Do you have a moment like that? No, I didn't have a moment like that. After Twitch, it just says, screw you, record company. They're trying to control me. Nobody can control me. I do what I want. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, I've always done what I wanted. I'm master of my own destiny. That's what I am. So after yeah. I walked away, they didn't say you're out of your deal or anything. And I didn't say, well, I don't know who I am anymore. I knew exactly who I was. That's why I walked away from the record company. You don't hear anybody that will walk away from a deal with Sony Records and still has options on his album. I still had options to do three or four albums for them. So I just said, screw it. I'm going to move back to Montreal. I'm going to earn a living doing jingles, which I did. I was very successful at it. I just Then somebody came up to me, the A&R from Sony came up to me and said, do you want to produce and write for a young French artist who happened to be Celine Dion? So I did. And that's who started that, that role from there. Crazy. I, I, I left and I went to Montreal. I had, yeah. to, wait, I had to wait till 1989 to finally release me. So Jeez. there was no... There was no, oh, I don't know where I'm going anymore. I knew exactly okay. where. You just uh, adopted a new plan, and it wasn't that big a deal. Now, your Grammy is sitting behind you. I can see it right there. There's a nice, bright spotlight shining right on it. You deserve it. So you got to tell me, I mean, the album you worked on, Falling Into You, was the breakthrough, but uh, she was already kind of, you know, she was rising with each uh, album up until that point. How did you even get involved? Because I think D. Snyder's involved in there too somewhere, right? I don't know. He's nowhere in the record. I don't but didn't I don't... he write? Did he write a? He wrote a Christmas song or something that she sang around this time. Maybe I'm misremembering. Uh, I don't. I don't okay. know. Then again, I'm not the be all end all of her career. Yeah, I me neither. I, for that matter. Although I started it and rebooted it twice. I mean, you know the. The way her, her career started is we did Incognito, which was a French album. And from there on that record, I had written a heart for a, a soul artist, a soul R&B artist called Angela Clemens, uh, previous to that record. And it was a song called Have a Heart. translated in French, and it was called Partout Je Te Bois. She does that on that album. And then she all of a sudden gets her, um, it's her shot at the playing on the Juno Awards, which are basically are the, the uh, Canadian Grammys. It's like the, the Junos are like the Grammys, big thing, big uh, hoopla. So um, I already had the song Have a Heart. I had it translated, it was done in English. Uh, previous and then she did it in French. So 
when they were looking for these songs to play on the Junos, they said uh, her husband that became her, uh, well, her manager that became her husband, Renard Jalil, came up to me and says, we have this song, it's called Have a Heart, and we want you to produce it and do a recording and get her and do it to a way where she can perform it on the Junos. So I, I literally recorded the whole track in a weekend. Coach Strauss, she did the vocal. She went up there, she lip synced, and they gave her an American deal, so. That's amazing, that's amazing. I, and I should say too, I'm not a Celine Dion expert in any way, but the one song of hers that I do actually really like is A New Day Has Come, and you wrote that, right? Yeah, sure. I was waiting for so long For a miracle to come Everyone told me to be strong Hold on and don't shed a tear Through the darkness and good times I knew I'd make it through And the world thought I had it all But I was waiting for you Hush now, I see light in the sky Oh that song so um i am curious we you know we try to cover the business side of the music industry as sensitively as we can on here you must have gone from kind of rags to riches with fantasy slowly back down not to rags because jingles pay really well and you're still doing okay but then all of a sudden the success of falling into you you had to be seeing mail mailbox money unlike you've ever seen before with that am i right uh, there's so much stories. There's so many crooked people in this industry. You think that all these people, it's, it's, you think that everybody's like squeaky clean in this industry and stuff like that. But it's always a gimmick, you know what I mean? Falling mm -hmm. into you, it was like, okay, well, you're going to have to give us half the publishing, otherwise the songs won't make it, things like that. There's always a catch, you know what I mean? And I'm the one who got the catch because I thought that they were my friends, so I signed the papers. But everybody else, because they told me everybody else was going to get you know, whether it be Diane Warren or Billy Steinberg, they said everybody's doing it, but they don't know that I know Diane Warren personally, or I know Billy Steinberg personally, so I called Billy, and he said, oh no, they, they came to me with the same offer, I told them to fuck off, but his song was still on the record. So it's always like, there's always a catch. You're thinking, 
And I was like, that year they made like $8 million off of what it could have been. So it's just always a catch. It doesn't matter. There's no... Uh, there's so there no wasn't a windfall of royalties coming your way? There was. You would imagine. There was. There was. Yeah, trust me, there was. I was the producer, writer. Yeah. Ranger. I mean, I was everything. So, uh, you know, of course, I wasn't, I'm not going to say it's like it went broke. That was a great year. Yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Don't forget, Chef Life of a song, the artist keeps living off the song years and years later. I mean, she's still performing the song in the day has come, and people go and see her to hear that song. Mm-hmm. But Chef Life of the songs, even though uh, New Day has come was number one in 26 countries for six months, so that whole period you're making like whack load of cash. Mm-hmm. But then three years later, when it's less popular, your money reduces and her money stays the same. She's still selling records and she's still selling live shows. So it's always a, you know, it was yeah. like. Were you able to save uh, enough to keep yourself afloat at a comfortable level for a while or did it get scary after this? No, I mean, everything was fine. I never, I was, you know, a successful songwriter. I wrote for Clay, he had a number one. The Quebec artist scene or the French scene, being that I'm per- perfectly, I can speak perfect French, I was also be able to work with like big stars in France or stars in Quebec. So I have pretty much a, a great roster of that, like you know, a bunch of gold records and platinum albums from that and those sales. So um, I never stopped, except in 2000, okay. I had enough of everybody. Everybody yeah. was just like, he was just pulling strings in the studio. It wasn't really like, I, you know, to see somebody come in with actual talent was, uh, there, there were some, but it was a lot of work. And then I, I just said, why should I work with all these other people? And then I was just going to work with myself. Uh, yeah. I, so that was going to be my question. So after the 90s when, and early 2000s, when Celine and Clay start having success with your, you, um, you know, you step away from making your own music other than Nova's dream is in there somewhere and 2.0 finally comes out in 2018. 
but you you're content from then until 2008 to just stay in the background writing songs producing um uh, i stopped writing songs in 2008 for 2000 people for other people even in 2008 i was just that's what i mean from the mid from celine until 2008 you are you take a back seat and write for other people and produce and you like that yeah 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 i, I enjoy okay. that i mean that's i'm I can write R&B like I can write classical, like I can write anything. I love R&B. I mean, I grew up with Motown and all that stuff. So for me to, on Celine Dion's album, take, uh, Taking Chances, I'm the only guy that got five songs. It's <laughs> five songs on somebody's album, that's, that's pretty big time. That's great. Yeah, that is great. Good for you, man. You deserve it. So I want to hear some stories. I want to hear, I don't care where the story comes from, the good old days, the mid period your favorite concerts hearing yourself on the radio meeting a hero what are some of your favorite stories when you look back on the career of aldo nova well i think some of the be the better the best stories i had was actually i didn't get to you know when i was at sort of my peak and the radio was playing my manager sandy perlman at the time already had me go to the Bay Area. Since it was easier, there was a lot of musicians in the Bay Area. I left from Montreal and went to the Bay Area, San Francisco. And then he had put three bands together. And out of the three bands, I went and chose one musician out of that one, two musicians out of that one. So I hired a great bunch of guys. I mean, to me, chemistry in a band is very important. That's why all my bands are sick. I mean, they're like amazing. So my best, Memories was those days that just like getting the band together, going to eat sushis and, you know, drinking sake and then going on the road with these guys and just having a ball. So I didn't really get, you know, we were on the road way before. We played in clubs, opening up for Huey Lewis. My first gig was in a punk club with like zero people in the hall. But, you know, that was, you know, the first gig. Uh, we were playing, like our first tour was Hall & Oates. Nice. Uh, I love Hall & Oates. I love Holonos. To think back on here and right, being on sharing a stage with one of the greatest American songwriters that exists. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, phenomenal. Yep, me too. They're like my all-time favorite. And I love Huey Lewis in the news too. Um, that's amazing. I, uh, oh, I had a question for you and now I'm blanking on what it is. Shoot. All those drugs you take. All those drugs. <laughs> it's clouding my memory. I remember what it is. It wasn't a question, it was a comment. So when I was looking over the credits of Twitch, uh, one of the backup singers is a guy named Pepe Castro. Yeah, he's and from Balance, yeah. That yes, and I've had, pa I, I love Balance, by the way, and I had Pepe on here. We've stayed in touch a little bit. And when I was getting ready to interview you, I reached out to him and said, do you have any memories of singing with Aldo on the Twitch album? He said, the thing that I remember is that Aldo was the real deal. Those were his words. And he said he was an artist who was in complete control of his art. And I know that at Twitch is, that album is you almost not being in complete control, but he was impressed by just the way that you were conducting yourself and performing and singing at that time. And I wanted to pass that on to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we had a riot, that was also a riot because it was him and two, I don't remember the name, but it was Pepe, and it was two other guys that were with him, and it was hysterical. And then at a certain point, we had, I had my friend Michael Bolton, because 
mm-hmm. you know, I played on his first album, I played solo on Back of My Arms again. And, uh, Love that album and that song, by the way. I had Michael come in and to do like songs on Layer Love on Me. You can really hear him on Layer Love on Me on the Twitch album. It's yeah. him, it's him front and center. Yeah. And Michael is the funniest guy. He does the best Rodney Dangerfield. people. And, and really? <laughs> yeah, he's hysterical. So uh, all these guys were fun. I mean, it was like a lot of fun. And plus, Pepe Castro is a big reason why my record was uh, mixed by Tony Bon Jovi because he was in balance and they were also on portrait. So when I walked into Lenny Peach's office, uh, not his office, but one day I went to his house to eat dinner and Lenny had these huge Uri, I think they were like five feet by five feet speakers in his living room or in a music room or something. And he puts on, and my record that was mixing it and it was like, sounded really flat and terrible. And I was like, oh my God. And, and so I, I go and he plays me the balance record and just comes exploding out of the speakers. I said, I gotta have that guy. So he plays my music and you know, introduced me to Tony Bon Jovi. And then me and Tony just had a, a ride. Rest is history. That first Balance album is so good. That's one of my favorites. It's perfect start to finish. I love that first Balance album. Oh yeah, with Bobby Kulik and Dr. Yep. Well, that's another thing. The first Bon Jovi record, all the background vocals are them with me, Dr. Saros, and John Bon Jovi. <laughs> and it was, and I did some keyboards, but all the, I did keyboards, but all the background vocals on the whole, whole album is me, Decca Saros from ba- Balance, and, and uh, John. That's wow. it. And there's no credit about it. Yeah. And the, the funny thing about that is when I do my own albums, I do multi-harmonies, and that's no problem. But when I do, when I did John's album, it was like, you know, I was doing notes that I wasn't really sure, so being not being sure of the notes. I brought, I always brought this little synthesizer with me, this little Yamaha synthesizer. So before I would do my part, I would play the little note on the keyboard to give me the reference. So if you listen to isolate all those vocals, yes, if you were to hear the background vocals on the Bon Jovi record, the first record, you're gonna hear <laughs> He's a little runaway, that's it's, it's it's, it's for real. I mean, so we didn't, I never, all it says, it says, uh, you know, uh, Pierce Courtesy appointed records. So. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for talking with me, Aldo. Did we cover it all? I, uh, I mean, 
Life and Times of Eddie Gage is fantastic. Your whole career is fascinating. I want to touch on all of it because there's something I love on all of your albums. There's a lot to love on a few of them. And uh, I just think your career is unlike anyone else's. It's fascinating. Thank you very much. You bet. All right, there you have it, Aldo Nova. Great guy. And if all you know is fantasy, go check out some other stuff. Even those last two albums that he made when things were sort of winding down and going more commercial, they're fun albums for the era. They're just not something he put his whole heart and soul into. But the first two that he did are great. The self-titled and subject, those albums are great. And the Life and Times of Eddie Gage sounds fantastic. Now, there's not a lot out there available yet, but uh, check it out when it does. This is one of the other songs off that album, When All Is Said and and Done. Um, So if you like what you hear, keep tabs on Aldo because this album will be out eventually and it's going to be solid. All right, 300 episodes. There we go. Now, next week, we are inviting, uh, we're going to be hearing from a guest who was a member of a band that is still beloved that you listeners love. I know you do because I hear about it a lot. I love them too. It's a conversation that uh, I'm pretty excited about. And that's the one that's going to come out next week. So um, hang out with us. Come back next week and check us out. A huge thanks as always to Yan the Man Malkevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. And uh, you guys know how to find us by now. You can like our page on on Facebook. You can send us a message. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you. We'll talk to you later.